You are listening to Hellcats Hope, episode number 14. Welcome to Hellcats Hope, the podcast to find humor, healing, and hope. Come along with Hellcat as she explores ways to help you overcome adversity and find your own inner Hellcat. Yes, Hellcat is her legal middle name, and hope is her game, bringing hope to others by showing what's possible. Here's your host, law school grad, motivational speaker, author, and certified life and smoking cessation coach, Lori Hellcat Bamford. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Episode 14, How to Find Hope in Recovery and Living with Depression and Mental Illness. Now, before I begin, I do want to mention some trigger warnings on some topics that we're going to talk about today, and those are depression, suicide, mental illness, postpartum depression, and post-weaning depression. So today I am chatting with Heather Loeb. Heather is a journalist and writer, a mom and a wife living in Corpus Christi, Texas, and her blog, unrulyneurons.com, is blowing up, y'all. It is so good. Now, she's also my badass cousin, so there's that. But I've been following Heather's writing for some time now, and especially her blog, Unruly Neurons. So she's been on my list of people that I've wanted to interview for this podcast because her story and her realness and vulnerability and truth is inspiring and seeks to remove the stigma associated with depression and mental illness. It is through sharing from warriors like Heather, my hope is that people will find healing, that caring for ourselves with depression is normalized and not seen as any weakness on any level. Mental illness is no joke and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's time we talk about it like we would about anything else in our body that's not working. This just happens to be the brain. The more we try to hide it or be embarrassed by it, the more shame around it grows and the pain and the illness grow with it. It's time that we name it, we stop the judgment, and we get the help that we need that is out there. You know, I've seen it firsthand in my family. I've seen amazing stories of recovery throughout my entire family. I would direct you to episode nine, where my sister-in-law, Sarah, with Sarah Nicole, shares her story of getting the help she needed to live the life she has today, helping not only herself, but others. But I've seen others not get the help that they need, and I refuse to be embarrassed or ashamed of it or to hide from it or the actions that have played out in the life of my estranged brother, for example. I've, I've seen firsthand how his pain left unchecked and unmanaged, has spilled over to hurt others with unthinkable words and actions that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. His threats or abusive and violent words hurled at other people are all just out of his own deep pain. And add to that concern, having unfettered access to an extensive firearms collection. But I know this. I know that that's his illness talking. It's not him. Those words are his illness, his sickness speaking. It's not him. Whatever actions he may take, that person, that's not him. He just hasn't found his path from the pain and despair to healing yet. And I've learned there is nothing I can do to help him until he wants to help himself. 
But the more stories I hear from the Sarahs of the world and the Heathers of the world that you will hear today, the more I have hope that every single person can heal and get the help that they need. This I genuinely and sincerely pray. And it begins by giving it a name, a story, a voice. Today, Heather shares her voice and journey to finding healing and the help that she needed. She shares how she had to be her own health advocate. Heather also shares her faith journey from Catholicism to Judaism. So enjoy this chat with Unruly Neurons founder and creator, Heather Loeb. Heather, thank you so much for being here today. You are my cousin. Yes. So your mom is the sister of my dad. Yes. And we share the same grandma, Grandma Bert. I and, know her as Mima. <laughs> right. And that's what I think is so interesting. You know, my siblings and family grew up calling her grandma, and, <laughs> but I know a lot of you called her Mima. Yes. I think Nathan Hansard was the one who started calling her Mima. And of course, so everybody after him started calling her Mima. It always yeah. throws me off when I hear y'all call her grandma, but... I know it. And then, you know, my mom's mom is mama. And so we have grandma, mama, me, I think it's just the, a generational thing. I think it's just the age difference yeah. because how old are you? Uh, 36. I had to do math too. I'm always like, <laughs> wait, how old am I? So there's a 15 year difference. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, I live in Corpus Christi. I moved here in 2007 and I started a job at the local paper here, the Corpus Christi Caller Times. And I was a reporter. And while I worked here for that, I guess it was just under a year, I met my now husband, David, who lives here. He's a fifth generation Corpus Christian and all of his family is here. So um, I moved back down after David and I had broken up and I moved back down in 2010. So I've been here uh, 10 years now. Wow. It's yeah, just really it like? hard being away from family. Yeah. And of yeah. course, David's mom does live here. She moved here a couple of years ago and she has been so helpful with the kids. So helpful. But you know, sometimes you just need your own mama. I know when we moved to Oklahoma for law school and I always thought I was going to go, you know, we would go back to Texas, but you know, you graduate and you're here in Oklahoma and you start to get, you know, your jobs and your clients and build your client base. And then the next thing you know, you have kids and they're in school here. And you know, the next thing you know, you're in Oklahoma longer than you have been in Texas. Right. <laughs> wow. And, but that was always, that was always a challenge was because we didn't have any family here. It's hard. What is the weather like down there? Right now, it's just hot. Yeah, it's hot. <laughs> so hot. Really, Corpus isn't really so bad with the heat, but it's the humidity that actually kills you. Right, right. <laughs> it is so humid down here. So the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, and, and specifically, I wanted to bring in different viewpoints and different perspectives of people on the wide various topics that I wanted to share and talk about. And when I started making a list of people that I wanted to interview, you were in the top three <laughs> and, I just, and it's not because you're my cousin because again, we didn't grow up together. I mean, no, you know, we would see each other. I can remember again, you're 15 years younger than me. So you were just one of the littles <laughs> running mm -hmm. around. Right. And it was always trying to learn who belongs to whom, which kid belongs to which aunt here. <laughs> I started following your blog and I am a huge fan and oh, it is, you. it is compelling. You are a wonderful writer you really do have that gift. And so uh, I encourage everyone to check it out. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your blog, 
what's it called? Where can people find it? Why you started doing it? Just, just tell all. Well, I started it in 2018 and it's unrulyneurons.com. And basically I started it to kind of journal about my mental health journey. Back then, my mental health was not great, but it has since worsened. And as I kept blogging and kept updating, I just realized that there was a compelling story here and not a whole lot of people really talk about how bad it can get. So, you know, last year I went to a psychiatric facility for six weeks and I wanted to talk about that because I didn't want to be the girl who, you know, went to the mental hospital. And it's like, like I told you, if that's the worst thing you can say about me, then say it fine. I'm going to be out in the open with it. Like, yeah, I did go. Right. And I'm a better person for that. Right. One thing, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. And I think I've read everything that she has written. And one concept that she talks about so much, and and it's not just in her books. I mean, there are YouTube videos out there. If you just YouTube Brene Brown and the topic of shame, and she teaches mm-hmm. that shame is something that will grow, at, you know, picture it in a Petri dish and shame will grow when it is silent, when it is not spoken, right. when it's not given a name. That is how shame grows. And the antidote to shame is to talk about it, is to name it, is to have it out there. And so I think it, you're doing such a service for not just yourself, but for other people. And so I just encourage you to keep doing that and to keep writing because it truly is wonderful. And, you know, just this week, Dr. Bertice Berry said that everyone has a story to tell. And it's always beneficial to tell that story. And it's beneficial not just to the listener, but especially to the teller. It's freeing. When I was first diagnosed, it was actually when uh, Mimon died. It was in 2003. And I was diagnosed at my school. And I didn't really tell anyone about it because I was ashamed. This was in college. Okay, where were you at college? Where was this? University of Texas at Arlington. Okay. All right. So kind of walk us through how that, when that was and, and how you were first diagnosed. I was diagnosed 2003 after Mimon died. It was probably a couple of months after Mimon died. I realized that I wasn't the same person I was. I was, you know, missing a lot of class. I had to cut back to part-time, which was like nine hours at the time. And I wanted to go home a lot more than I had wanted before. And so I was like, you know, maybe I should talk to somebody. And I'm sure my friends had mentioned it too. So I talked to a counselor at the university health center. She got me to see a doctor and they, they said, Hey, you're diagnosed with depression. I was embarrassed. I don't think I started medication, but that's where my journey was official. I had an official diagnosis. Right. Now, knowing what I know now, I can see that I've always had anxiety and a form of depression since I was little, maybe middle school. When did you start taking medication? Uh, it was when I moved to Corpus Christi. So I was about 22. And did that help? Was it manageable at this point? I was seeing a psychiatrist and a really good therapist that I still actually see today. I've seen her for more than 10 years and the medication did help. But honestly, when it started to get very bad, it was after I had my babies. Right. Uh, after my oldest, Isla, um, I got postpartum depression and I got post weaning depression, which not a lot of people talk about, but I had quit breastfeeding so I could get on better medications to feel better. And I just went through an awful spell. It's, I mean, it's no joke and it's scary when you go through that. And it was something I'd never really been through before because I mean, the hormones that you lose and get after having a baby, it's just crazy. So I was suicidal. Um, 
just having mood swings. And I, I mean, of course I always took care of the baby, but it was something that scared me. Right. And then not shortly after Isla was born, I guess it was about 13 months after Isla was born, I got pregnant again with Eli. Uh, again, I was fine throughout the pregnancy. I think the hormones kind of saved me. And But after he was born, I started to slip back in that postpartum depression and I couldn't breastfeed correctly and he had a bad latch. And so I had to stop breastfeeding early and I got back on medication after I stopped breastfeeding. I guess about a year or almost two years after that was when everything just hit the fan. During this period with your kids, what kind of support did you have? Were you still seeing your therapist? Kind of what support systems did you have in place during that time? After Isla was born, I didn't really have a solid support system. I did see a therapist and I did have a psychiatrist, but David's dad had just died and there were problems within the family. And I just, I just didn't have a lot of help. Right. With Eli, it was a little bit better because his mom had moved to town by then. And I had a really great housekeeper who's still with me today. She's amazing. And uh, all my friends knew what was coming because they had seen it, me go through that with Isla. So everyone was able to plan a little bit better around my mental health. That's good. And so after your son was born and you said things got really, really bad, tell us what happened then. I just, I was so weepy all the time, just crying all the time. I was suicidal. I was so anxious. Everything made me anxious. And I would get like these intrusive thoughts that either my family or friends were going to die or I was going to die. And I would just be constantly praying, oh, please don't let that be, you know, and that's, that's what anxiety is for me. And it was just awful. So talking to my therapist and David, we decided I would go inpatient at the Menninger Clinic in Houston. And tell me about that. How did you find that place? And, and tell us about your experience there. My best friend actually had mentioned the Menninger Clinic a while back because she knew they did ECT there, the electroconvulsive therapy. And I it really, it's kind of a last resort. And I was labeled treatment resistant. So none of the meds would have really helped me anyway. So I decided I would go there. They do intensive counseling, they do medication changes, and then they offer therapies like the ECT and like TMS treatments. And it was decided that I would start ECT at the, at the facility. And I can't say enough good things about Menninger. It really, truly saved my life. I got there and they did a bunch of tests, a bunch of diagnostic tests and cognitive tests. And I got to go to an intensive counseling session every week or twice a week, I don't remember, and group therapy. And then there were these classes that you could take about addiction problems, trauma, dealing with like learning new coping skills, stuff like that. And all stuff that I learned, I'm still doing today and to try to maintain my mental health. But it was, it was life-saving, truly. Okay. So you mentioned when you went to the Menninger Clinic that one of the therapies that they offered was ECT. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. And what happens is that they put the patient under anesthesia and then they put like a little electrodes on your forehead and a simulation induce a seizure and the brain works to stop that seizure and somehow they don't really know exactly how it works but it kind of is a reset on the brain and it helps people with severe depression and catatonia you know mental illness that can't be really helped with medications and so how many of those treatments did you have while you were there at the clinic there's like a 
index course. You go like three times a week for three weeks or something like that. And I think overall I've had about 20 uh, in the past year or so. And will you continue those? I will. So right now I'm in the maintenance phase. So whenever I'm kind of feeling off, I know it's time to go get one. It's usually about six, every six to eight weeks. And how long does the session last? The seizure is usually a minute or a minute and a half, like at the longest. So you're under for about 15 minutes and then there's recovery time about 30 to 45 minutes. How did it make you feel afterwards? How did, how did you know that this is the, the remedy for you or one of the remedies for you? I just, after I had done that like index course and then a couple of maintenance treatments, I felt different and like, you know, that like little burning in your tummy and your chest that makes you feel so happy. And like, I could get there. And I realized I was like, Oh my gosh, it kind of restored my happiness. And uh, I mean, I still have downtimes and you know, things like that, but I, it really was life-saving for me because I was, I was very suicidal when I went into the clinic. And while I do have thoughts of suicide, sometimes it's not near as bad as it was. And it's made me more active around the house and I get everything done. That's awesome. And yeah. so when you have those thoughts of suicide, what do you do? I mean, do you feel them coming on? Do you have a protocol? What happens in those moments? So when I am feeling that kind of stress and that, that thought pops into my head, I usually call my therapist. I let my psychiatrist know. I talk to David. I say, Hey, you know, it's time for an ECT. And I kind of take it easy until I just survive until I can get the treatment that I need. That's awesome. Yeah. It also mentioned, I think, EMS or TMS? TMS. That is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And I did that like a year and a half ago. I didn't really do anything for me, but it has helped people before. It's like they find the spot in your brain and there's like a magnet that they put near your brain. And it kind of, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't remember exactly how it works, but. That's one of the treatments if you're medication resistant, and a lot of people are. The only thing about ECT is uh, it causes memory problems. Oh, and so tell me about that. <laughs> when I came back to Corpus and, you know, I, I was still doing the treatments, you know, I went to a nail salon and this woman next to me started talking to me like she knew me. And she's like, hey, Heather, you know, how's David? How are the kids? And I had no idea who she was. Oh, gosh. I, I had no idea. So I just talked to her and I acted like I did know. And I eventually figured it out because another lady came over and said her name, but I have forgotten entire people, forgotten things that have happened, like important things. I forgot that my daughter had tubes put in her ears when she was little and just random, random things. And they say it's only supposed to affect like affect you during like after right after a treatment, you know, you kind of forget everything, but no girl, I've lost years. <laughs> but it still sounds like the upside to that treatment, it far outweighs that as one of the downsides. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, I can't, I can't say that I love going to get the treatments because I do not like the anesthesia, but really it just, it totally resets my brain and then I'm ready to go. And you were there in the facility for six weeks. Is that right? I was. It was a long six weeks away from my babies. Yeah. Were you able to see them at all or FaceTime or have any face-to-face -face meetings with them or with David? No, I didn't have access to my cell phone, but uh, David did bring the kids up a couple of times and then my parents would take them. They would meet us there and then take them from David and have them for a week or two. 
So it was good for me to see them. And at first I was like, oh my God, I don't want them to see me here. But I, I had to, I had to see them. Right. And in the end, isn't that better? I mean, for your kids to see, at least you're being your authentic self to your kids. Right. And that's one thing that I really didn't want to do was keep my depression under wraps from them. Because you know what, they're going to learn about it eventually, they're going to know and why keep it a secret. And I think at first, I was worried about them struggling with it later on in life. But now I realize, hey, I've already been through all this stuff. And I can help them if they should fall into depression, which which could happen. Exactly. I mean, it could happen. It might not happen. It might happen. But you are going to be able to model for them how to deal with it. Right. And I think one thing that I was holding on to, I wanted to be the super mom when they were born. I wanted to do all the things that moms did and the best, be on best, top of the best breastfeeder and all yeah. the things, right? Yeah. And that's just not realistic. Right. I, I do have limitations. I do. And I think knowing my limitations and admitting them and being upfront about it, that is a strength. Absolutely. It is. And again, I go back to that concept of removing shame from the entire discussion by being honest about it and open and not shrouding it in some sort of secrecy, because that is a dead end path. Like that just, it is. It is. I wrote like an opinion letter to our local paper here talking about mental health and depression. And I finally admitted in that piece, Hey, I went to a psychiatric facility for six weeks and I was, uh, you know, I was like, Oh my God, are they going to publish it? Are they publish it? And then they did publish it. And I was like, Oh my God, now the whole city knows, but (laughs) Hey, I mean, what did I know that I went to get help for something that I needed help with? Right. And somebody may see that and, and think, you know what, maybe I need to look that up and they go and get the same kind of help. I blogged about this the other day. I had a friend who's a nurse in Florida. She's an ER nurse. So she's going through it real bad right now with patients. And she said that she was starting to get depressed again when all the COVID stuff started. And she said, Hey, I reached out and I got on medication because of your blog. And that is like the highest compliment. Mm, That is so wonderful. That is so great. I love that. So you were at the Menninger Clinic. This was just last year, right? Yes. Before that, one of your doctors had told you that you were quote, treatment resistant. Yes. So I was seeing a psychiatrist here in town and he had tried various medications with me and it really wasn't working. And he and I butted heads a lot after I had the babies about breastfeeding because I wanted to be able to breastfeed while on my medication. And he was like, no, 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 you can't, which is wrong because you can be on the antidepressants and breastfeed. So I butted heads with him and he just kind of labeled me treatment resistant and Mm. told me that no medications were going to work. And I really felt like that was, he was a dead end. Like, how am I going to get better? And when I went to the Menninger clinic, they were like, oh no, have you tried this? Have you tried this? And named several patients, several therapies that my other doctor hadn't told me about. Sorry, it's just so crazy how many different doctors have different opinions about things. But you really, if you are depressed and you're facing any kind of mental health challenge, you have to be your own advocate and you have to keep trying because there are doctors out there who will say, all right, well, I can't help you. And I mean, that's sad, but. It almost sounds like he was in that mode of, well, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm done with you. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had told him my own OB said, Hey, you can breastfeed with Zoloft. So I went back to him. I'm like, she said I can have Zoloft. And he's like, well, you have to pump and dump if you do Zoloft, which is not true again. And he had never heard of post weaning depression. So when I was going through that and kind of telling him that's what I thought it was, he just, he had no clue. He just, 
He had no clue. Yeah. If someone is listening that going through the same experiences that you have had, what would you want to say to them? That it gets better. That even you might be so sad and you can't get out of bed and you can't shower, but there is help available and it gets better. So much better. I'm close to crying now because it's just, it hits home, you know, but it does, it gets better. Let's talk a little bit about your faith. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? How you grew up, what's your current faith today? Well, I grew up Catholic because my mom still goes to mass and everything, still in the Catholic church. And I was confirmed and I had my first communion in the Catholic church. As I got older, after high school and college, I didn't really feel like I fit into one right religion. I was working at a homeless shelter. This was in 2008. And a lot of different faith groups would come into the shelter and volunteer. So I got to talk to a lot of the leaders and I would ask them questions about their different religions. And I just, I don't know, something, it just didn't fit. So one day I was talking to David, he lived in Corpus Christi and I was, yeah, I was in Arlington at the time. Current husband you you were dating. Yeah. And I was telling him everything that I believed, just giving him a list of tenets that I believe. And he was like, you know what? That sounds like Judaism. You should look into it. So I thought, okay, well, there's a rabbi that comes to the homeless shelter. So I'll see if I can get a meeting with him. So I met with him and he gave me a list of books to read. And I asked my questions. And one of the questions was just a simple, what do you think happens when we die? And he looked at me and deadpanned. He said, your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) And that sold me. I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, it's the truth. It is. Yeah. I understand about having faith and stuff, but uh, he, he told me that and I was just like sold. I read all the books and then I ended up moving back to Corpus Christi and I moved in with David and we were talking about marriage, but we weren't engaged at the time. And I just kind of continued my journey, the rabbi down here and he gave me some more books to read and he's like, just let me know if you have questions. And one night I, I just emailed him late at night and I said, look, I'm ready. I'm ready to convert. I feel it in my heart that I belong here. And he also, he was like, you know what? He's like, the best way to be a Jew is to be a Jew. (laughs) And so we had a ceremony. Is that simple? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a lot of like the Orthodox rabbis will have you go through some stuff. But with him, I I mean, I had told him, we had talked, we had made questions that he answered. And I just felt it in my heart. I'm, I'm supposed to be a Jew. I've been Jewish. I just didn't know it, you know? Right, right. And so I had my ceremony and both my kids are Jewish. They go to a Jewish preschool and it's so wonderful that for them to get in on the ground floor and learn all the traditions and stuff. And right. it's, it's so nice. How did your family react? My mother was very supportive. Yeah. She told me actually that if uh, Meemaw wasn't Catholic, she would have been Jewish because yes. Meemaw had always uh, admired the Jewish religion and yes. uh, Judaism. So she told me that and I, I thought, well, that makes me feel better because you never, you never know. Some people say mean things like, oh, she wouldn't have accepted that, but she would have. I absolutely agree with you. You know, because of the age difference, we had different experiences. But, you know, one of my main memories of Grandma, Mima, is she was at that church every time the doors were open. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, same thing with your mom. I just love your mom. I hope she's listening to this. Aunt Ruth, I just love you. All of them, obviously, I just love and adore. But in terms of the Catholic faith, just seeing their 
commitment in that. And not just because it's Catholicism or Judaism or whatever your faith is, you, you stand in confidence in your faith Mm -hmm. and you don't judge other people for the faith that they choose to stand in confidence in. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Quick story. When my dad was dying and we were at the nursing home and I, I've shared this before in a previous podcast, but you know, we're at the nursing home, dad, you know, he has maybe a few hours left and all the family was there. And I kept hearing grandma in my head saying, you need to get a priest up here. You need to get a priest. It's time to get a priest up here. And I was like, grandma, I don't know. Cause you know, we're all different faiths. You know, I, yeah. I still identify with the Catholic faith. I call myself sometimes a cafeteria Catholic. I pick and choose <laughs> what I like. And, but, but our family's full of all sorts of different faiths. Right. And so mm. I thought, gosh, I don't want to offend anyone. And, you know, grandma, I don't want to rock the boat. And so I just kind of kept ignoring it. Well, I had gone to a restroom just off the nurse's station and it was, it was a, it was a large restroom, but it was a one stall. So mm-hmm. I'm the only person in there door locked obviously. And, and, and I, I'm washing my hands and I hear grandma again, you need to call a priest. And out loud, I said, grandma, just, just give me a minute. Let me, let me, through." <laughs> well, I opened the door and all the nurses at the nurse's station are just staring at me. <laughs> because obviously I'm in there having a conversation with someone. And so I was like, grandma, just give me a minute. Let me think, let me think about this for a second. And I'm walking down the hall and your mother comes up to me and she puts her sweet hands on my, on my shoulders. And she says, Honey, I don't want to upset anybody, but what do you think about getting a priest up here? (laughs) So I was like, (laughs) fine. (laughs) I knew that she had my back. I knew that the family had my back if anyone was going to be offended. And guess what? No one was offended. Yeah. Nobody got upset. It was a, yeah, our dad was Catholic. He grew up Catholic. He grew up in that faith. And so, of course, it was a Saturday. I I thought, how am I going to find a priest in Gainesville? on a Saturday. And so I did though, I started just calling uh, everyone that was on the directory of the local Catholic church. And that priest was there within probably a couple of hours. And so my dad was able to have his last rites. And so I just, I love that story about your mom just being so sweet about it and just kind of having my back and, and just being like, this is what we need to do. And it was just kind of confirming what grandma was trying to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) that we needed to do that. So that's good. It sounds like your family was supportive. What would you say to other people that may be listening right now that are having questions about maybe the faith they grew up in and exploring alternatives? What, what would you say to them? Well, I think having questions about your faith is perfectly normal and you should have questions. I think if you take a faith just by someone telling you, hey, this is what you need to believe, it's not really worth believing. So you need to ask your questions, do research, read books, and just be open to exploring other cultures and other religions. Yeah. But I mean, if I hadn't asked my questions, you know, I would have never been like, oh, well, duh, okay. (laughs) This is what I'm supposed to be. Right. Everybody has been pretty open-minded and accepting. Good. Sometimes the best thing to do is walk away and not engage. Yeah. Well, that's a good lesson, especially for today, right? Oh, yeah. You and I discovered probably in 2016 <laughs> that we were of the same political leanings <laughs> and affiliation. Yeah. And so yeah. we would kid and say we were the black sheep of the family. 
Yeah. And what I mean by that for everybody listening, they're like, what in the heck are they talking about? Is this some sort of inside joke? No, I would say probably the majority of our family are Republicans mm-hmm. and conservative. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I think you and I, I think there are more, I think they're just not as vocal about it. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Or of the left leaning Democrat side. How do you manage that in our family? Well, this is a little trickier for me because while I do feel like a black sheep, my parents and my brother work together okay. and they have a lake house together and they see each other every day, which right. is good. I'm, I'm glad for them. So it makes me feel like even more of a black sheep when something like politics casts me aside. When Trump got elected, I was upset and I cried. And a couple of weeks after he was elected, I guess there were a bunch of Jewish community centers that were being targeted with threats. And so I was mad and I sent my brother and my mom and my dad a text saying, see what you did. Oh, <laughs> I, was, oh. I, was, I was angry. You know, yeah, I, sh- yeah. I should not have done that. I should not have done that. And that caused some hurt feelings, which are fine by now. But sometimes you just make yourself even more of an outcast. Yeah. And so I think that's probably the lesson here is like you said, sometimes it's just best to walk away. Right. Yeah. You know, we're not going to change people's minds. I I don't think so. Not, Mm. not at this point. Yeah. Not with the rhetoric that's already going around on both sides. Yeah. On both sides. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I just, I've always appreciated that because there are times that, you know, I thought I was alone. I thought, I don't know how this happened, but I am the only liberal in this family. But then the more I started talking to family members, the more I've realized I am not alone. You and I are not alone. So that's kind of been a fun (laughs) experience. (laughs) So we, but we're making it through, right? We're making it through. We are. Oh, um, just a little story about your dad. Mama and I, I was visiting mom for some reason and I had gone to the hospital where he was and, you know, she asked him if he was awake and he opened his eyes and she's like, oh, do you remember my daughter Heather? And Kenneth said, oh, I never forget a beautiful woman. Oh, (laughs) and he, he was quick with it. He was, he was on point and uh, just making smart, clever comments and very witty. Yeah. I'm glad I got to see him before he passed. Oh, thank you so much for that. That's really sweet. You know, he was, he was witty up until the very end. You know, he, he really still had his wits about him and his humor. And, you know, one of the things I remember is he knew we were all there. And again, you know, I'm one of 11. So there were a bunch of us. (laughs) And then he's one of seven or eight. 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 So he's one of eight. So of course there were a ton of people there. And I just remember his main concern, you know, he was in and out of it, but when he would wake up, he'd be like, did everybody get something to eat? Did everyone sleep? Okay. (laughs) Like, I think he thought we were like at a house. And so that was just one thing I just loved in those moments and just having to reassure him. Yes. Okay. Do you know where he gets that from? (laughs) Meemaw. Meemaw. Really? When she was in the hospital, I had to have my gallbladder out. So this was early 2003. And my mom didn't tell her about the surgery. She didn't want her to worry. But I came in kind of walking a little funny and we, we ended up telling her and she's like, oh my gosh, is she okay? And it was, it was just like, she made my thing bigger than anything, you know, like she wasn't in a hospital bed right then. But you know, that's how she fussed. She fussed about her grandkids. She really did. That's, I, I remember that. And she would worry. I mean, 
I, I can remember us maybe not telling her things because she would worry about that. Yeah. And I remember one time I was visiting her and it was just me and her in the room and I had fallen asleep in the chair. And when I woke up, I realized, uh-oh, I forgot to turn it to Jeopardy. And she was awake there. And I was like, why didn't you wake me? And she's like, oh, well, I wanted you to sleep. And <laughs> she was just like that. Yeah, she was the greatest. Oh, she was. I love that. I'm so glad we're sharing these stories. This is great. And thank you for sharing that story about my dad. That's awesome. Yeah. You had mentioned Tikkun Olam. Oh, uh, Tikkun Olam. Okay. T- tell me about Tikkun Olam. Okay. So that is a basic belief. It's heal the world and um, do your part to heal it in your corner of the world. Do whatever or use whatever platform that you have to make sure you're leaving this world better than you found it. And that's something that they teach very early on because Isla and Eli learn about it every year, every week and learn to get charity at the Shabbat, like the service every Friday and they give charity there. And, you know, it's just basically the belief that you have to do good in this world. And Jews are very big on that. I love that. I love that. And so you feel like that is part of your moral obligation in what you do to share your story. Absolutely. Like I was suffering when I first had depression and it just got worse there. And I feel like had there been more people opening up to me and talking about this, then I wouldn't feel so ashamed. And so, you know, let me be that person. I'll, I'll gladly talk about whatever you want, you know, if it makes you feel more secure and sharing and reaching out for help. My sweet cousin, you are making a difference. And I just want to thank you for doing the blog. I am a huge fan. I love your writing. I encourage you to keep doing it because I really do think that you're making a difference. And that's why I wanted to have you here because I want to normalize depression. I want to normalize mental health. I want to normalize these things that people deal with every day because if we keep it in shame and secrecy, it's, it's not going to get better. Exactly. And so I just, I really thank you for sharing your story and sharing these different things with me today. I've really appreciated it. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add that maybe we didn't get to touch on? Just one quick little story about Isla. Yes. Um, like I said, they go to a Jewish preschool. And one day I had mentioned that daddy was helping the school try to get funding for a new building. And uh, she's like, oh, well, I want to help. She's like, I'll donate my piggy bank. And I kind of laughed. I was like, okay, well, you, you can keep your piggy bank. But when she went home that night, she emptied it out and David counted it all up. And she had about $96. And she took it to the school the next day and donated it with not even a care in the world, just no hesitancy. But that's, you know, that's part of what they teach there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. It's all part of that tikkun olam. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so for those who are listening, it's T-I-K-K-U-N-O-L-A-M. Well, cousin Heather, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it too. Okay. I sure love you. Love you. Thank you so much for listening to Hellcats Hope. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe. To book me as a speaker for your next event, work one-on-one as a coach, or find more information on my upcoming book, please go to whatthehellcat.com. Thanks for listening.